Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. I want to talk today about Jesus and true fulfilment. Every single one of us have significant hopes, dreams, longings and desires. From a Christian point of view, that's just because that's how the one true living God has made you. He's made you with these longings, these desires. Some of these longings and desires are very deep within us. Some of them are maybe more superficial. Some are particularly impressive. You might have a great desire to climb Mount Everest. Does anyone actually have a desire, a deep desire to climb Mount Everest? I mean, no, I've never actually met anyone who does, but many do. But you have all sorts of desires. We all do. Longings of the heart. These desires drive us. They impel us to certain sorts of action. You can spend a significant part of your life trying to fulfill various desires, whatever those desires may be. They drive us. They motivate us. They sometimes cause, cause a significant grief. Even. What do we do with all these desires? These longings that we have in our heart? Well, one thing you could do is you could just strive harder to fulfill them. Just give yourself to working to fulfill your desire, whatever that desire might be. If it's a desire to have a great, stellar career, then just work harder. Get those HDs. Get that internship. Climb the greasy pole in the workplace. Become, just work hard. Maybe that's one solution to the desires of your heart. Just work a lot harder. Mind you, different worldviews have different approaches. So, Buddhism would say, the reason that you have so much pain in your life, the reason any of us have so much pain in our life, is because you desire things. Desire is the problem in the Buddhist worldview. So what should you do with your desires? You should get rid of your desires. If you get rid of your desires, you stop longing for stuff, then actually you'll have a much pain-free life, if you can get rid of all those desires. So says Buddhism. Whereas Christianity says, actually, no, desires in and of themselves are not a problem. In fact, the one true living God has made you as a human being with all these desires and longings. Desires themselves are not the problem. According to the Christian Bible, the difficulty comes when we take those desires and instead of finding them fulfilled in the right place, the place that God intends, we go off track and seek to have them fulfilled in some other place. We depart from actually God's plan for how those desires might be fulfilled and that's what causes us pain and grief. What we want to do today is try to think about how does Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's said, how does he impact on our day-to-day experience of being people of great longing and desire? We want to think about that together. Uh, what we're doing here is flowing on, as uh, Sammy told us, from EU's annual conference last week. Hand up your annual conference last week. Most. Hey, great. Great to see you here, turning up to uni. That's excellent. <laughs> at least you're starting the semester well, right? By being present. What we want to do is try to take the approach that we took last week at annual conference and apply to this particular question of human desires and longings. What was the approach we used last week at EU's annual conference? It's not working. That's a bit sad. Let me try again. 
Let's do it this way. This was the approach we tried to take to the question last week of what does it mean to be a human being? Does that now die? Can you still hear me? Can you hear me now? I'm going well here. It's on. It's just all gone very quiet. What we're trying to do is take a, a we're trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be a human being? The particular approach we took last week was, let's try to take, instead of, say, a chemical or psychological or um, evolutionary approach, let's take a relational approach. Let's try to answer the question of, what does it mean to be a human being in terms of, by thinking about our relationships? What we saw last week at annual conference was that you, me, all of us, have been made by the one true living God. He has created us and he's loved us. How do we know that? We know that because he sent his one and only son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he sent him to die and rise again on our behalf. So God the Father has created and loved us. God the Son has died and risen again for us, enabling us to embark on a God-planned and God-enabled trajectory. From without Jesus, we we are in death. We are in Adam. But the trajectory that Jesus enables is for you to go from death in Adam to glory in Christ Jesus through faith in him. So God enables this trajectory through Jesus and then he puts his spirit in you to enable you to be transformed day by day, moment by moment, year by year into greater and greater likeness of the Lord. So God, the Father, Son and Spirit is a work in you to bring you to be the person that God has created you to be in Christ Jesus in his image, who is the image of the Father. That big picture is the central relationship, according to the Bible, the central relationship for which you have been created. The relationship with God himself in Christ Jesus and his spirit. That's at the centre. What we tried to see last week at annual conference is, once you've got that right, that impacts on everything else, every other relationship that you have, even in how you understand yourself. So we tried to explore last week how that affects things like sexuality and gender, how it affects issues like euthanasia or our experience of suffering or what it means to have a disability or issues like abortion or issues like work or family life or the environment. We try to explore how this central relationship you have with Jesus then affects everything else. That's what we try to do. And today what we want to do is take that same approach and apply it to the question of, What do we do with our experience of having all these longings and desires? What can we say about that? Now, there's many, many different longings and desires we could have picked on. And what I've tried to do is try to identify what I think are four key desires and longings that you, that people in Gen Y and Gen Z, which, so that's you guys, that are very common to this particular generation. Um, now, I'm not Gen Y and Gen Z. I'm way too old for that, clearly. Um, so maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe in trying to land on these four particular desires, maybe you go, well, you, actually, some of that's good, some of it's not so good. This is actually what you should have talked about. Here's the really deep desire that sort of is true for us as a generation. I'd love to hear that from you, actually. That'd be really helpful to hear that and have that conversation together. 
But the four desires I'm going to go with are these, which I think are right. Our desire for authenticity, our desire for impact, our desire for connectedness, and our desire for happiness. They're the four I'm going to pick on. So what does Jesus have to say about these particular desires? Well, let's work through them. Let's think, first of all, about authenticity. Here's Mr. Hipster. I'll ask you a question. What is hipsterism? I don't even know that's a word, but what is hipsterism all about? Really, what is what is hip? What is the hipster phenomena about? What drives it? I asked the teenagers who live in my household, my family, about this the other day, and they just said, oh, Dad, look, it's just cool. <laughs> yeah, I know it's cool, but what, like, why, why is it cool? It doesn't make much sense that hipsterism is cool. I mean, last December, Jenny and I, were, my wife, we were celebrating 21 years of marriage, and so we were down in Canberra, and we were... Um, Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, I think, praise be to God and thank her, frankly. Um, 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 she's put up with it. But we were in Canberra and instead of, you know, we'd stayed in the fancy hotel or whatever and instead of having breakfast in the hotel, I said, no, 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 there's been a revolution in Canberra. Canberra is now a cool place to go. No offence to you if you're from Canberra. Um, but, but, you know, there's all these really groovy hipster cafes and stuff like, let's go out and have breakfast in one of those cafes. And she said, oh, okay. And so out we go, we go to this place. It was great. It was so cool. It was all recycled timber and it was all sort of old signs and they served things on bits of wood. I don't know why they don't use plates, but serve things on bits of wood. And, and the, like when you order your coffee, it doesn't, like it came in this sort of really old sort of cup and saucer which had chips in it. Like the cup and saucer would be way older than you. Like it was heaps old. And... It was great, fantastic. And Jenny's just sitting there across the table looking at me going, what are we doing here? Like, like there's flies everywhere because there's no fly screens because it's all open and, and I'm, I'm drinking my tea from a, cup, a chipped cup. Like, I've got better stuff than this at home. Like, why are we doing this? What drives hipsterism? It makes no sense. Why is it cool? Why is it in? What's the thing that... now? I don't know what your theory is. You probably don't have a theory. You probably just go with it. Anyway, I've got a theory. My thought is this. I wonder whether actually what drives it is that hipsterism is just one particular outworking of a deeper desire. And I'll talk about some of the other ways it comes out. But I think part of the desire in hipsterism is it's a, actually a rejection of the superficial and the temporary and the ephemeral, and it's a clutching after something of more substance. Something that sort of has a history, something that has roots, something that's grounded, something that's got a story. It's not just so it's not just something you just bought at IKEA, you know? Like it's something, no, this is there's something to this, and we clutch onto that. There's a dissatisfaction with commercialism and consumerism and a desire to be connected to stuff that's come before. It's this desire for things that are really authentic, really real. The irony, of course, in hipsterism is that so much of it is actually about the surface. 
what it sort of looks like, it's still so actually materialistic. Which is sort of why in the end I think it doesn't really satisfy. It doesn't really ground us in the way that we're sort of hoping for. It doesn't give us the deep authentic experience maybe that we long for. But you see this same sort of longing for authenticity in other places too. There's been a massive increase over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years in a desire um, or a resurgence of religious ritualism. So, I'm sorry to talk about when I was, you know, young, but like in my generation, Gen X, when we sort of came through into adulthood, we comprehensively reject religious ritual. Get rid of it all. No, we just want the content. Just give us the truth. Just give us that. But now, there's been this resurgence of religious ritualism in all sorts of different religions. People are way into sort of prayer wheels and the actual, uh, the burning of, the, of incense, of the practices and even in, say, uh, Christianity, there's been a resurgence of liturgy and the sort of the ceremonies that go around with... I think all of this is just a, a, a symptom of this search for things that have a history, a past, something to ground myself in, a search for authenticity. And this search can have in quite profound ways. Because part of the search for authenticity is actually a search for identity. It's trying to ask the question, maybe not even who am I, but how do I be me? How, like, what should I, what, I, what should I actually be doing? How should I embody myself and live my life in a way that is true to me, who I am? This desire for an internal authenticity. Now, that can, in a world of options in which we all live now, where there's just so many options to pick from, so many options to pick of, of what gender shall you be? What sort of career ought you have? Where should you live? Where should you go? There's so many options. The, the quest for how do I really authentically be me in this world of options is quite overwhelming at times and sometimes even quite stressful there can be a fair bit of angst associated with it. Because I don't know, in the world, like, how do I work it all out? What does Jesus have to say to this longing for authenticity, this desire or search for authenticity? Well, what I want to do is I want us to look in one particular chapter of the Bible. Um, there's many, many things you could say from the Bible about some of these desires, but I want us just to go to one chapter today and see how this one place in the Bible sheds light on these different desires that we have. So we're going to John chapter 15. We're going to use this passage, the first 17 verses of John chapter 15. It would be great if you can open it up, call it up on your phone, have a look at it, because we're just going to stay in this passage mainly. And we're going to see what light Jesus sheds here on these particular desires that we have. So I'm just going to read through John 15, 1 to 17, first of all, so you get sort of a feel for what Jesus is saying, and then we'll think, what, is, what can we pull out of here about authenticity and about impact, connectedness and happiness? Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in John 15, starting at verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean, and there's a word play there, I'll just point this out to you on the way through. That word clean is the same as sort of the word prune in the previous verse. There's a pun there that you miss in English, but you pick up in the original language, right? So it's like he's saying in verse 3, you are already pruned, if you like, cleaned, because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, they are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than they lay down their life for their friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. So let's think about what Jesus says here, first of all, about our search for authenticity. Notice the first four verses or so. Jesus uses a metaphor. He says, I am the true vine. My Father, God the Father, is the gardener. Now, you hear that and you go, okay, so it's some sort of metaphor, but you don't understand possibly, you're not really aware of just how significant that metaphor is as Jesus uses it with his disciples. That metaphor of the true vine and God being sort of the gardener who tends the vine, that has a deep, significant history back in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, that metaphor is used to describe God's relationship with his chosen people. Two places you can chase it up, Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80. Let's turn to Psalm 80, just so you can see it there. Psalm 80. So the background to this vine metaphor. Psalm 80 is actually a prayer to God, crying out to God, God, look at all the bad things that have happened to us, your people, why don't you come and fix it up? And when you jump in at verse 8 of Psalm 80, you see this vine metaphor and the psalmist uses it as a way of telling Israel's story, describing their past. Have a look there in verse 8. It says to God, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea. It shoots as far as the river. 
So it uses this vine metaphor as a description of God bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them to the promised land where they prospered and extended out to go all the way from the Mediterranean through across to the Great River. So this is, a, this is this background to this metaphor. Then come forward to John 15 and Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. You are the branches. What's Jesus saying? He's saying the true people of God, the true people who are in relationship with the one true living God are all connected to me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you want to be in a true relationship with the one true living God, if you want to be part of the authentic people that God has been purifying and choosing for himself, then you must be connected to Jesus. According to Jesus, that's the only way. What does this connection look like? How do we connect into Jesus? Well, you can see there, his word is the key. He says there, Verse 3, you are already clean or pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. And if you jump down to verse 7, you can see he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. How do you stay connected to Jesus the vine? By hearing what he has to say, hearing his word, bonding in trust. His words remain in you. They transform you. They direct you. You treasure them and seek to live by them. That's how you stay connected to Jesus. That's how you be part of his chosen people. That's how you have a living relationship with the one true living God who made and loved you in Jesus. There is a profoundly deep identity. And you know what? It comes to you as a gift. Not something you have to earn. Not something you have to search for. Not something you have to be angsty about. God says, I've made you, i loved you, I want you to be part of my people, adopted as my children. Here it is, as a gift. When we were at annual conference last week, we explored this idea of a relationship with God. And one of the ideas we picked up on was the idea that God adopts us through faith in Jesus. He adopts us as children into his family. That same image is used here in John's Gospel. If you've got the Gospel of John open there and flick back to John chapter 1, you can see that same idea here in John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. John sort of summarises what happens as you respond to Jesus in faith. He says, Yet to all who received him, him being Jesus, all who received him, to those who believed in his name, those who entrusted themselves to Jesus and believed who he is. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. If you're searching for an authentic identity, you can't get much more authentic than that where you are born of God. Born because He has decided to make you His child. There's an authentic identity grounded in the person of the one, of the one true living God, in His actions for you in Jesus, 
that he offers you as a gift. You don't have to keep wondering, how do I be me in a world of options? Because God, the one true living God, who made and loved you, says, here it is. That's something that Jesus has to say about our search for authenticity. What about our craving for impact? Our craving for impact. We all want to, I think, make a difference. Pretty much everyone I've ever met at Sydney Uni all hope that they're going to make some sort of difference in the world. Improve the world, maybe in some sort of way. You're either you're, you're, you're hoping that you're going to be one of the people who are going to solve some of the great mysteries of the world. I mean, maybe you'll, you'll unlock the secrets of human psychology. You'll discover dark energy. What, 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 you'll, you'll unlock something. All the physicists laugh at that point. But, uh, you know, but you, secretly, you know that's what you want to do. Anyway, but we, we, or maybe you're, maybe you're an engineer and you say, I'm just going to build a great bridge. I just want to build it. Yeah, but the civil engineer is going, yeah, yeah, I do actually. I do want to build a great bridge, a big one. You want to build a big bridge? You want to write the great novel of 2027. I mean, it'll take you that long to become a decent writer, probably another 10 years, but you want to become a person or write that great collection of poetry. We want to make a difference. On our better days, we want to make a difference for others. On the not-so-good days, we really just want to make a difference, have an impact for ourselves. What does Jesus say about this? our desire to have an impact, to make a difference. Well, part of what the Bible says is, well, it makes sense, because as we saw last week at annual conference, we have each been made in God's image. Do you remember what, how I explained last week what it means to be made in God's image? Does anyone actually remember? Rowan, you said so many words. Who knows what you... Who knows what you anyone remember? Thank you. Representative, he has made you to be his representative ruling presence in his world. He wants you to have an impact. He's made you as his image bearer, his representative ruling presence in the world. He wants you to have an impact, actually, so that you desire to have some sort of impact that makes sense, because that's who he's made you to have, made you to be. But notice it is his representative ruling presence. It's actually to represent him, which means that whatever impact whatever difference you want to make, surely it has to be according to his plans and his purposes and done in such a way that it reflects his character. What does Jesus have to say about this in this passage here in John chapter 15? Well, have a look there in John chapter 15. First of all, notice from halfway through verse 4 to verse 8, notice what Jesus says. He says, No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him, then they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't that the last phrase? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, that's just not true, is it? I mean, it's not true. You do all sorts of things, don't you? Can't you? You don't need to know Jesus or be part of his people to, to do stuff in the world. You can build bridges without Jesus, right? 
You can write a novel without Jesus. You can do all sorts of things without Jesus. What does it mean? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing for God. That's what he's saying. If you remain connected to Jesus, his words remain in you and shape you, then yes, you can do much fruit. You can produce many things in life for God. But if you try to walk away from Jesus, if you try to leave Jesus out of the picture, you can do nothing for God. Nothing, he says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you might write the great novel of 2027. You might build an awesome bridge. But it won't be for God. Have a look what else he says here as you keep going. Um, down in the, uh, verse 7. Look at this for impact. Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Well, think about that for a moment. Here's a way to have impact. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. All right. Peace in the Middle East. I ask for it, it will be given me. Well, I'm having a pretty good impact there. What does he mean? Ask what it, Well, you've got to look at the first half of the verse. It's always important. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish to give me. That is, if Jesus' word is really living in you and it's remaining in you, shaping you, then what sort of things will you ask for? You will ask for things that are actually reflective of his word, right? His word has cha- shaped and changed you, motivating you giving you particular sorts of desires and longings. And then if you ask in light of those things, he's saying that will be given you. Why? Because Jesus' word is the word of the one true living God. So the circle is complete. He's God the Father's word through Jesus the Son in your life and you reflect that back in your prayers and what you ask of God and guess what? It'll be given you because you're asking according to God's will, shaped by Jesus' word. There's a way to have impact. But keep going. Verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Here's an impact that you might never have considered, an impact you can have in the world. That you, little old you, can bring glory to the one true living God. I mean, the one true living God, he made everything, right? He don't need no more glory, right? He's got plenty of glory. He doesn't need any more glory, but what Jesus says here is that you, when you bear fruit, when his word lives in you, that, that, that comes out in your life, you bring him glory. There's an impact you might not have considered ever making before. Bringing glory to the one true living God. But what sort of fruit is Jesus interested in? Have a look at the next section here, John 15, verses 12 to 17. What sort of fruit is Jesus interested in? The fruit he's particularly interested in, particularly, is love. Verse 12, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. 
You are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. What's the fruit that Jesus is particularly interested in? It's the fruit of love, that we would love one another. And what? how does he describe it? He says, this is the fruit that will last. There in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So you might build an awesome bridge. Great, the world needs more bridges. You might write the great novel that in Christmas holidays, 2027, I take away and read on the beach or whatever. Like You might do great things, but you know what? That bridge one day will get torn down. I mean, it might just fall down. That would be bad. But I hope. But at some point, they will just tear it down. At some point, that great novel that you wrote will only exist in Fisher's stack on some dusty shelf that no one has looked at for 10 years. It won't last. The only fruit that lasts is love. How does love last? How does it last into eternity? I mean, love is like it's, it's not a physical thing that you can touch or feel. Or How does love last? Well, I think the way love lasts is because when I love you and you love me, when we lay down our lives for each other and elevate the other person, then I am encouraging and sustaining and strengthening you. And you, through faith in Christ, last into eternity. So my love for you has an eternal fruit. There's an impact that you can have for all eternity. And you know what? It's not based around your ATAR. It's not based around how many HDs you've got. It's not based around what, where you live or how successful a career... You know, love. There's the fruit that will last for eternity. That's something that Jesus has to say about impact. What does he say in the last couple of minutes I've got? What does Jesus say then say about our longing for connectedness? We all long for connectedness in lots of ways. That's what social media, I think, that's why we love social media, right? Just enables you to stay connected all the time, constantly, 24-7. I mean, I, I, <laughs> this is sad. This is, I'll be honest. Sitting there in bed the other night before I go to sleep, I was, you know, doing what you always do, checking social media. Um, I was just checking Facebook. My wife sitting next to me, checking Facebook. My wife sending messages to my son in the other room <laughs> because it was just too cold to get out of it. Like we just live via this digital connection and uh, we're more connected than ever before and we love it. We love it. We can't get enough of it. We love to be connected. At a deeper level, it's, it's reflective of our just our desire for relationship and to be known, I think. To be known, to be understood, to be cared for. We just have this longing for connectedness. Notice that this passage that we've been looking at, John 15, just notice that connectedness is all the way through it in lots of different images and pictures and words that Jesus uses. It's there in the vine image. I am the vine You are the branches. And it's all about being connected to Jesus at that point. In verses 9 and 10 of the chapter, it's all about being loved. As my Father has loved me, 
He said, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Here is a relationship, a connectedness of love and trust, right? Because obedience is just about trust, right? So the Father loves the Son and the Son responds in trust. The Son loves us and we respond in trust. These relationships of love and trust, or love and faith, you could say. But it keeps going. Verses 12 to 13, it's about loving one another, the connection we have with one another in Christ. Or keep going. Verses uh, 13 and 14, we are Jesus' friends. And not just any old friends. We're friends, according to verse 15, we're friends who have been fully informed by Jesus about God's plan. Now, I must admit, when I was preparing this, just that, that bit there in verse 15, where every, Jesus says, everything I have learned from my Father, I've made known to you. That really struck me, because I thought, I think I'd always sort of thought that Jesus knew more from his Heavenly Father than he'd let on. I just assumed that there must have been other stuff he knew, that he sort of kept in his back pocket, kept to himself, and he just shared. But that's not what he says, actually. He says, everything I have res- I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. How totally does Jesus give himself for us? Not just on the cross, but even in all his understanding of his heavenly Father. He shares it all with us. He says, I do that because you're my friends. You're my friends because I share all of this with you. Or, notice there in verse 16, that we've been chosen. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So if if you have that sense of I, just, I do long for connection. I do want to be known. I do want to be loved. Notice here what Jesus is saying. Is that he loves you. He chooses you. He reveals all these things to you. He has a deep desire for connection with you. That you might be connected in with him. And finally, before I finish, uh, what can we say about Jesus and the desire I talked about all that. Jesus and our dream of happiness. There's a massive rise of, I don't know know if this is the right phrase, the happiness industry, it feels like in our society, on trying to help you attain this great goal of happiness. There's even a sort of a whole philosophy of happiness now, how to be happy. And um, I I can understand that, though it does concern me a little bit that our society has now basically said, unless you are happy you are not living a fulfilled life. I, I think given the sort of stuff we looked at last week at annual conference and trying to think about what's a Christian understanding of suffering in the world, I'd want to raise a question about whether if you're not happy, you're not living a fulfilled life. There's a question about that. But what can we find here in this passage about Jesus and our dream of happiness? Well, notice here verses 9 to 11. As I said before, there's this relationship of love and trust, right? As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands, remain in his love. Here's the the key point, verse 11. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What's he saying? saying, I've told you this so that I might take my own, Jesus saying, my own personal joy in you because you've heard my word and now you're responding in trust, right? I've loved you and you're responding in trust. I want to take my joy in, the, in that fact 
And he says, so that your joy may be complete. Complete joy for a human being is found in this relationship of love and trust with the one true living God in his son Jesus Christ. That is the true source of complete joy, a a relationship of love and trust with God in Christ. That's what Jesus says. So what can we then say about Jesus and true fulfilment? How do we conclude here? I think what we can see is God has made us, yes, as human beings, with deep desires, deep longings. That's how he's made us. Our temptation is to seek to have those things fulfilled in things that are not from God. To wander away and seek to seek fulfillment in other things. And that always causes us grief and pain. Rather, what we see here in the words of Jesus is, ultimately, because he is the one who's made us and loved us in his son Jesus, our deepest longings and desires only find their final fulfillment through this relationship with God in Christ. came across a while ago, a number of years ago, this, uh, I think, helpful quote from C.S. Lewis. He says... It would seem that our Lord, meaning Jesus, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. See, we can sometimes think, oh, my desires, my longings are so strong, I, I can't help it, I have to, have to have them met here or in here. And maybe God somehow wants me to tone down my desires. He says, no, no, you're going about the wrong way. Jesus doesn't find your desires too strong. He finds them too weak. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Where are you searching for authenticity, for impact, for for connectedness, for happiness. Don't be too easily pleased because ultimately those desires will only find their true satisfaction in the God who made you, who loved you in Jesus and wants you to be related with Him. Now I've got no time for questions. But I'll be hanging around, so if you want to come and ask me some questions. Um, but before we go to afternoon tea, let me pray. Father Lord, um, thank you for the true fulfillment and satisfaction we can find in a relationship of love and trust with you in Jesus Christ. We pray that we will find our identity in you and that we will remain in you and your words in us. As we go out into the week ahead, help us to love one another as you have loved us. Amen.